All right, First John. We're in that portion of the New Testament that we call general epistles uh, because we don't have a specific congregation or person that's identified in the letter as the recipient, like when Paul would write to Timothy or to the church in Corinth or something like that. Uh, so we, we designate these as general epistles. This one, as we're getting into the writings of John, uh, there's not a whole lot of question about who the author is, though he's not named in the book, uh, because of his his writing style and because of the connection he makes back to the gospel that he wrote, uh, plus the statements that he makes in this book about being one of the apostles. So it's pretty simple to connect the book to him as the author. What gets a little more challenging is to figure out when it was written. And uh, I don't know that I take the popular view. I don't know actually what is popular view and what's not. But most of what I have seen is different than what I believe. Uh, so let me just give you kind of both of them. There are a lot of, of commentaries or commentators or teachers or whatever who present the book of First John and the following books as being written about A.D. 66 or 7, something like that. Uh, because it doesn't mention the destruction of Jerusalem yet. Uh, I tend to think that it's probably written around A.D. 90 to 92. And that's a significant difference. And, and it really makes an impact on how you interpret the book of Revelation. Because if you, uh, it, there are some who believe the book of Revelation is dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, you can't, and it's the last book written. So you can't say that John was written, 1 John was written in 90 to 92 if uh, Revelation had to be about the destruction of Jerusalem because it had to be written before AD 70, wouldn't it? Okay, so that's why it's significant to, to know this as I'm going through it. But the reason I put this book around 90 to 92 is because we see a, a maturity in the way that John writes and we see, uh, we see a connection to who he's writing to as far as Gentiles and not to Jews. I mean, there certainly were Jewish Christians in the 90s, but the church had a lot more Jewish Christian before AD 70, uh, and they were receiving the persecution that was happening as Judaism was about to be destroyed by, by Rome. But after that, it's not really very much that connects anywhere at any time to anything that is Jewish. And this book doesn't connect to Jewish. It's really a Gentile written book or written to uh, at some point, John had left the area of Jerusalem, uh, and he's the last living apostle, by the way. In fact, by the time this book is written, he's the only living apostle as far as we know. Uh, but as he got older, one of the things that happened with John is, is he ended up in Ephesus. Uh, and his age caused his health to deteriorate quite a bit, and eventually it got to the place where he was still preaching, but they were carrying him around to wherever he had to go, and his strength was so weak that... The historical records, or whatever they are, uh, traditional records, say that it, it, when he even couldn't preach, he would just say, you know, my little children love one another. So uh, as his age progressed, this book and the book of Revelation occur. Now, Revelation is going to occur after or at a, uh, a time in which he is exiled on Patmos, and then he is, by tradition, going to go back to Ephesus again after that is over. So you have... In between, or right before what he's going to write about Rome in the book of Revelation, you have this book or these books that he writes at the end of the New Testament. We call them general epistles. So the book of 1 John is written from a perspective of trying to get them, uh, encourage them 
as this persecution really ramps up at the end of the first century to encourage them to stay true to God and especially to avoid those teachers who were taking them away from what was the truth, some of whom were in the church, some of whom were not. You remember when Paul was ending his missionary journey and he believed that his life was about to end, uh, he, he, he skipped over the city of Ephesus. Do you remember that? But he called for their elders to come and meet him, right? And in meeting them, he told them that there was some error that was coming and it was going to come from them even. In the eldership, some of this is going to come out. Well, that's the church where John ends up at about the time that, uh, that this book is written. I don't know how much of that error had already occurred, but I know that when he writes the book of Revelation just a few years after this one, they have left their first love. So, uh, so John is in the midst of a congregation that everything that we know about it at this time from the scriptures would tell us that they're really teetering. Uh, that they're starting to go off of where they should be as far as sound doctrine is concerned. And so this book is written for the purpose of encouraging them and all of the churches in the Asia Minor area to be strong, to be courageous, and to overcome the, the error that's around them. So starting in chapter 1, we're supposed to cover two chapters today. I don't know whether we'll do that or not, but we'll try. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Now, I know that was a long start there, but I wanted to especially get those, the, that long sentence because that really immediately makes a connection back to the first book that he wrote, which is the book of John. You remember how it began? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And then down in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory. Okay, that's what he's saying again here. He's saying the one who is eternal, the eternal Jesus the Christ, who is the Word, was manifested to us. We saw Him. We heard Him. We touched Him. He really did live. There were a couple of prominent errors that were occurring uh, around the end of the first century. Agnosticism was already pretty big. The idea that you really couldn't know, and the Gnostics were big too, that they were very, uh, they thought they were much more intelligent than everybody else. But another thing that had happened is uh, this idea that, yes, Jesus was God in the flesh, but not specifically all the time. And what I mean by that is they taught that once he was, before he was baptized, he was just Jesus, a man. When he was baptized, that deity came upon him, and before he died, the deity left him. And so in between, he was, he was a deity. Well, John takes care of that right in the beginning. He says he was before, from the very beginning of time, he's in existence. He's always been in existence. He is God in the flesh, and we saw him, and we heard him, and we touched him. So he really was alive, he really was God, and he really was the flesh. That's hard to understand, isn't it? 100% God, 100% flesh, how can that be? We don't understand God. But that's what John is telling us about Jesus. And he says, the reason we write all of this is so that your joy may be full. What does that mean? Does anybody know the difference between happiness and joy?
that's a good way to put it. What's happiness? Yeah. Happiness is an emotion that's based on what's happening out here around me. Joy is something that comes from the inside about who I am. It's about who I am. And so what he's writing to them is, listen, if they're going through persecution from Rome at this point, and they are, and if they're going through challenges because of the error that's being pressured upon them, and they are, well, you're not going to go around happy all the time, are you? Even if you know, even if you're a Christian and you know about the blessings of God and you know what's coming in eternity, you can't be happy about all the things that happen around you all the time. You just can't. That's an emotion. But you can always have joy. And that's why Paul would write, rejoice in the Lord always. Nobody ever said be happy always, but you can rejoice always. And so as John writes this, he's writing about the fact that Jesus is deity and he was really here in the flesh. And the reason John's writing all of this is because they need to know really and develop the kind of joy that will get them through, well, the difficulties that they're facing. All right, keep going. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Let's stop there just a second. So, we, 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 so you know, it's easy to take a passage and throw it in a sermon out of its context and make the point you want to make. And we don't do a lot of harm to this passage, but we, we emphasize in these two verses the fact that Jesus is light and the world is darkness and he shines a light into the world. And, you know, we deal with that from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about even them being the light of the world and not hiding it. And that's valid, isn't it? But that's not the context of what he's saying. He's just talked about the fact that Jesus is God. He was in the flesh. And that's why they're writing. And now he says, if you're living both ways, if you're trying to be with him and still act like the world and look like the world and be like the world, then you're not really in light. You're actually really in darkness. So, you know the word Christian? What's it mean? It means Christ-like. Is that what it means when we use it today in the world? No, that's not even close to what it means. We use it to define somebody who is spiritual or religious or uh, claims to, to know that God exists or actually owns a Bible. That's what we use it for. You know, we call our nation a Christian nation. And I understand what we're saying is it's founded on Christian principles and all that. But the truth of the matter is the definition of Christian nation doesn't fit any nation on this earth. But we can be Christians by the way that we live. So you can claim something, but if you're, if you're living different than Christ, then you're still in the dark no matter what you claim, right? Okay, look at it again. I want to start in 6 and then keep going in 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Lots of things to bring out here. One of them is the contrast. It starts with the contrast, right? If you claim to be a Christian, yet you're walking in darkness, you're not, that's not honest. You're not right with God. But the contrast to that is, if you walk in the light, you have two things. One of them is fellowship with each other. That's a hard part. That's a hard part because, well, we don't always get along, do we? And when you're not always getting along, well, you don't really spend any time together. You don't talk to each other. And I mean, I've had times that people, uh, not necessarily here, but there have been times in my life that people would go out of uh, their way to avoid coming around me so they didn't have to shake my hand. Uh, well, that's not fellowship, is it? If we're right with God, guess who else we're right with? 
his children, fellow Christians, right? <laughs> That's hard. That's hard because that means we need to figure out how to get along even with differences. We need to figure out how to get along. So that's the first part of if we're walking in life. But the second part of it, the cleansing part. The cleansing part. And you hear me say this frequently. If you're reading from the King James Version there, it says cleanseth. His blood cleanseth us. What's that mean? Continually. It's something that's present active. It means it continues to happen. So he says that first word, walking, is a continuous action too. And so he says if we are continuing to walk in the light, then his blood continuously washes us of our sins. Now here's a question that's going to come up now before we read further. So does that mean you can walk in the light and still not be perfect? I mean, if, if blood is continually cleansing you, there's something there to cleanse, isn't there? So this is where we struggle. Where we struggle is this idea of somebody saying, well, I know I'm... They don't say this, but, you know, are you going to go to heaven? Well, I hope so. But the reason we say that is because I know that I'm not perfect. I know, the, I know who I am, and I know the struggles and the challenges, and he knows that too. Is that what walking in the light means, that I, that, that I, that I don't have these weaknesses, that I don't have these failures? It can't mean that. What it has to mean is his blood continuously washes us as we continue to seek to serve him. It's a direction. So let's see how that goes. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, some of that is really very simple uh, and very straightforward. There's, didn't Paul say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? So that's what God says. So anybody who says, look, I don't have anything to be forgiven of, well, they're a liar. They're lying to themselves. They're lying to you. They're lying to God. They, all of us are imperfect. That's what Paul has already told us. So he says we can't contradict God. We try to make God a liar. So what he says is, how did he put it? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why would somebody say they had no sin? Could be ignorance, yeah. In fact, that's what this was deception. Anything else? Hypocrisy? Ego? Want to be more important than other people? Arrogance, that's a big word for this. But if you're, li if you're that person, what you're saying is, I don't need God. And that's a deception even of yourself. You, there is nobody who's self-made. Everybody is, is, is in some way benefited by things that we, we cannot do ourselves. And so he talks about our spiritual life, and what he says is, we need to recognize that we are failures. We need to recognize that we are sinners. And when we admit that, do you know what the word confession means? Confess? How is it? What does it really mean? The original language, the word that's translated confess means to say the same thing. So when you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, you're saying the same thing about Him that God says about Him, right? Okay? When you confess, which is what He's talking about here, that you can then have forgiveness, what you're saying is the same thing about you that God says about you, which is all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You cannot be forgiven by God Unless you're willing to say the same thing about it that he is. Keep reading. Chapter 2. 
My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So now he says, wait a second, I'm writing all this. And, and he's just told you, he's written it so your joy will may be full. And now he turns around and says, I'm writing all this so that you won't sin. But if you do sin, so is it possible for us to get to a place where we never will sin? So then why is he saying that in this writing? Just because I know that I'm going to fail at times doesn't mean I just sit back and, and accept it. You know, that's kind of the point that Paul was making in Romans when he said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Just because I know that there are some things that I'm not going to accomplish and the things that I'm going to fail in doesn't mean that I just sit back and let it happen. I'm continuing to try to grow, continuing to try to spend time in God's Word, continue to try to become what He wants me to become. And I know along the way there are going to be some pitfalls in the journey. And when that happens, what do I do? Is it over? First time you fall, is it over? Second time? Hundredth time? No, he says we have an advocate, and he is the propitiation. This is the interesting thing about the way that's worded. An advocate is somebody like your attorney, your, your representative before the judge. Right? Somebody who speaks for you before the judge. A propitiation is the one that has paid for your penalty. So the one who is speaking as your advocate before the judge is the one that paid the penalty. How do you, how do you get around that? So the point is, if we say the same thing about ourselves and about him, that God says we're in a position where even though we want to do better and hope to do better, when we don't do better, he's still there as our advocate. Keep reading. Now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, and by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Again, an incredible description of our world today. Uh, you cannot claim to be something and live different than what you claim. You have to be who, who, who you're claiming to be. It's talking about this hypocrisy. If we're not following what he says, can we claim to be his follower? I mean, how much more simple could that get? On top of that, we claim to... Be, we'll just use it both ways. He talks about know it, but we claim to know him... Or we claim to believe him, but if we don't know what he says or believe what he says, do we know him or believe him? If we don't practice what he says, somebody can say, look, I know God and I have this relationship with God. And then they go and talk about, uh, you know, all you got to do is say a sinner prayer and you'll be saved. Well, they may know who God is, but that doesn't mean they know God, do they? Because knowing him means understanding what he says and following along with that. Living my life according to what he teaches. That's what it means to know him. The religious world today considers keeping his commandments Phariseeism. The same as the Pharisees. That's what they consider it. Yeah, we are we're working like the Pharisees did to try to earn our way to heaven. That's the idea that many people hold today. 
Uh, and yet just the opposite is what John has said here. In fact, what he said here is, if you love God, how would love of God be perfected? Two people start dating, right? And they're on their best behavior, right? They, they take showers and clean up and try not to smell and, you know, act like they're, they talk, they talk, communicate, and they act like they're, you know, on cloud nine or whatever, and, and they fall in emotion, right? Emotion, and then they get married, and eventually they know more and more and more and more, and as they do, what develops is love. We call it love first, and I'm certain it is, but it's not the same as the love that you have after 30 years of marriage or whatever, right? And the difference is because of what you know, but don't you have to actually develop that? Isn't that why oftentimes we struggle? Because we quit doing what happened to develop that? And that's what John's saying here about our relationship with God. I can know Him. I can know Him and acknowledge the fact that He he sent His Son into this world and that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all of mankind. But if I don't take that and make an application to who I am and the life that I'm living, then I don't truly love Him. Because I haven't developed that continue to develop that relationship see the word love is used today just like that word happiness that i talked about a while ago and it's an emotion so we talk about we love someone but we're not in love with them anymore meaning that we don't like the way they are anymore so we're not happy it's not about happiness it's about a commitment love is a commitment it's a sacrifice even It's not an emotion where you feel good all the time. And so the way that we love God is at making that commitment. Not when I feel good about it. Not when he says what I want to do. But all the time. Keep going. Oh, verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. I mean, again, I don't know how John could be any more simple than some of the ways that he words this. If you claim to be something, you ought to be actually living what you claim, right? So if you say you love him, it ought to show up, right? Okay, now we'll keep going. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Is that confusing? I don't write a new commandment, but I write a new commandment. How how do you figure that out? Well, he says, I don't write a new commandment. This is something that's been there from the very beginning. Has God ever expected anything less than total love and commitment toward him and his people? Has God ever expected less than that? When... when, uh, when Noah is being, and his family are being saved through the flood, was it because everybody else was really good people, but God just liked his family better? Or was it because the rest of the world was not committed to him and walking his ways? That's what it was, wasn't it? And so, always from the very beginning, God has expected man to love him completely and to love his people completely. But on the other hand, when Jesus showed up, there was a new tweak if you will in the way it was stated see what he said is love as i have loved you he didn't say that before the cross and the reason he didn't say that before the cross is because his love had not been displayed the way it would be displayed at the cross so what john's now saying to them is look from all throughout time god has had this same command but in more recent days you know that it has been it has been refined a little bit if you will 
It's been qualified a little bit, if you will. Because now you are living in a time in which you have seen just how much God loves you. And since you have seen it, then you respond to it in loving Him and loving each other. Keep reading. This next part's a little challenging. I know very few people that agree on what this next part fully means. So, uh, so I'll just read it, and then I'll back up and tell you what I think that he's saying. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write, and this one should actually be I have written by the original language. I have written to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, what sense can you make out of that? Well, here's the thing. If you, if you look at each category, they're, they're in two sections of three, right? You got the, how did he word it? What was the first one? Little children, what was the second one? Fathers, what was the third one? Young men. Okay, he does that twice, right? The first three are from the perspective of God. The second three are from the perspective of man. But all three, all, the three both times are saying the same thing. He's identifying a spiritual level of maturity. When you're young, when you're a new Christian, some things are harder, aren't they? You don't know everything that you should know. You know God, but not the way that you will know him. So there's a process of growing that happens. Well, the fathers are people that are supposed to have more knowledge, aren't they? People that are supposed to have more wisdom. Well, the problem is, the more you know, the more you're supposed to be, isn't it? And that's a battle, isn't it? Aren't we in a battle with ourselves even? And so the young men are strong and in battle and in fighting. So he's not talking about age. He's talking about maturity. He's saying you become a Christian and you keep knowing and growing and maturing. And when you do that, you actually fight the battle to live the life that God asks you to live. I think it's more simple than it actually sounds when you just first read it off the surface. They know God, they have been forgiven, and they're fighting that battle to keep living that life, which means to keep walking in the light, which is what he just said, wasn't it? So you become a Christian, you start the passage of walking in the light, you grow, you learn what it means to be there, and you fight the battle to stay there. Okay, keep going. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For... All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, again, we're not talking about the emotion. When you use the word love, you're not talking about the emotion. So when he says, don't love the world or the things in the world, he's not saying, don't be happy about the blessings that God has provided you. Don't be happy about the relationships that you have in your family. Don't be happy about where you've succeeded and where you live and all. don't be happy about it. he's not saying any of that what he's saying is don't have such a commitment to those things that you neglect the thing your love is supposed to be toward god because all these things out here in the world see here's the way it goes you make commitment all you want to to your wealth and guess what it's not gonna last might last past your lifetime but it's not going with you is it and houses you seen all the tornadoes that have gone through the Midwest in the last week? How many people were in houses that they thought the day before were permanent, you suppose? And they weren't the next day, right? You can love your house, you can love your job, but it's not going to last. You can love your family, but they're not going to last either, are they? 
So if our commitment love is to all these things in this world that's going to just eventually be gone, well, then we're not going to make it. But if our love is toward God, we can stay where we're supposed to be. We can walk in the light. That's how we win that battle. As those young men that are fighting, we win the battle because I'm not going to drag with me all the weights from the world. I'm going to fight for the one thing that will last forever. Keep reading. Little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Let's start there just a second. Uh, so he's now starting to identify, and we probably will run out of time before I get through all of this section of this chapter, but he started to identify a problem. And I, I want to tell you before we start into this, most people, when they see that word Antichrist, in fact, does your, does your Bible capitalize that word? No, mine does. Mine capitalizes it. And the reason they capitalize it is because of a belief system that's out here in our religious world. And the belief system is that there is coming at some point some supposed world power, single individual, who is going to be the Antichrist. I mean, you've seen the old horror movies like Damien or something like that, right? Yeah? Okay, and that's the idea. And so the idea is that there'll be this great battle at the end of time, and they use the book of Revelation to talk about Jesus. The Antichrist will show up, and everything will fall apart, and then Jesus will show up and defeat him, and we'll live forever, a thousand years anyway, on the earth before we, you know, ascend to heaven with him. Okay, but that's not... That's not the truth. And in fact, the, the word Antichrist is not even found in the book of Revelation, which is where they teach it from. It's found here and a couple more places where John will write. So here's what I want you to get from it. John's going to define it for us. What did we say a while ago about claiming something and yet not following what God says, loving him, believing what he says and doing it? Deceivers. Okay. So he says, here's what we know. This time period that we're in, he here calls it the last hour. Sometimes it's called the last days, the last times. Uh, he says this time period we're in, we know that it is the end of what God, God's plan was all along. And the reason we know that is because there are people around us who are antichrist. Now, I want to ask this question. What does that word mean? We'll get there, but just tell me what the word itself means. What does anti mean? against and what does christ mean yeah it literally means the anointed one it's the greek word that would be under the old testament messiah or messiah so they looked for the coming of messiah the anointed one of god but now we look back because he's been here right did you know you can't be anti-messiah before he shows up you can't oppose him if he hadn't been here right so the fact that there are people who are opposing him, John says, means that we've been, we're in this time frame. Okay, what does he say about it? Well, keep going. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Stop there. They went out from us, but they were not of us. But you have the anointing of the Holy One. So there's a contrast we've got to figure out. If we got the second part, which means they've had miraculous inspiration, right? I mean, somebody's laid hands on Isn't that what the promise was and what happened when the apostles would go out and they would lay hands on people that obey the gospel? Didn't they gain miraculous gifts? Okay, here's a question. Did having a miraculous gift, even having miraculous knowledge, mean that you were going to always follow it? 
No, I know that for a couple of simple reasons. One of them is the church at Corinth, one of the reasons they had all those problems and wrote all those questions is because they had not been listening to their own knowledge that Paul says they had. They had miraculous knowledge and they hadn't been using it or listening to it. The second reason is, I remember this account in the book of Acts where there was a man by the name of Simon the sorcerer, made a whole lot of money fooling a whole lot of people, and when he heard the truth, he obeyed the truth, and there were hands laid on by the apostles, so he, like the other people around him, gained miraculous ability. The problem with him is, well, it wasn't enough to be like everybody else. He had made a lot of money because he'd been above everybody else, so he went to the apostles and said, hey... Give me the ability to pass on those gifts. He had miraculous ability, yet he became unfaithful. So what we're reading about here is, evidently, somewhere at some point, these people that are teaching and leading others away had been a part of what they were here. But they didn't have the same commitment. They weren't truly committed to him. They were here. They even had some miraculous ability, but they weren't committed to him. So when they went out, they wanted other people to follow him. It was them. It wasn't about God, was it? Even though that's what we say it's about. So he says, you shouldn't be fooled by them because you have miraculous knowledge. Isn't that interesting? They were fooled. A lot of people were fooled. They had miraculous knowledge and they were fooled. And you look at that and you say, how is that possible? If I had that kind of miraculous knowledge, I, no, no way I'd be fooled, right? Except for we have all of it recorded. Should it be any different? Yep, and that's where we're going to get to. Don't go there just yet, but that is where we're going to get to. Against Christ. So keep reading now. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father, and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So the problem is, like I talked about a while ago, there were some people that were believing that he was really just a man and yet God came upon him at his baptism and then God left when he died and all of that. That makes him just a man, right? What is it even today? Even today, there are religious groups who are still looking for the Messiah because Jesus wasn't it for them. Okay, according to what he just said, the definition that the religious world uses of Antichrist, being some political or world leader that's going to show up sometime and lead all of us away and punish us and, you know, for Christianity and all that, rather than that, what John defines as Antichrist, who, by the way, were already there when he wrote this book, doesn't matter whether you date it before 8070 or you date it where I do, doesn't matter, they were already there, right? And what did they... What designated them as Antichrist? What did he say? That's what the result of it was. He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. If you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, you don't have God or His Son. See, that's the problem. And the Hebrews writer talked about that. When we have been washed and we willfully go back to the world, or even the old covenant, as as many of them had done, what happens is you lose your sacrifice, right? You lose your sacrifice. You lose the one that died for you. Well, what if you deny him? What if you deny that he was God in the flesh? Is it not the same thing? Do you not lose that sacrifice? 
So you become anti-Christ, which means you, you're not just... People don't reject God like that. People just say, well, the Pharisees and the Jews of his day, when they rejected Jesus, did they think they were rejecting God? No. They thought they were honoring God. When Saul goes out and has Christians killed, he doesn't think he's dishonoring God. He thinks he's honoring him. But the bottom line is, if you reject God in the flesh, if you reject Jesus as the Messiah, you've also rejected God. Because God's the one that had the plan and sent him here, wasn't he? Okay, I don't know whether we're going to go any further yet or not. Uh, you know what, we've only got about a minute left, so let's stop there and we'll pick that up on Wednesday night and go into chapter 3 then also. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here today and we're thankful, Father, for your word. We're thankful, Father, for the opportunity to walk in the light and we pray that you will continue to bless us as we seek always to do that, as we always seek to shine your light through us into others into this world. Help us, Father, always to glorify you and not ourselves. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.